Welcome to Mortals. A podcast where we explore how humans have dealt with death throughout history. From embalming and epitaphs to mourning and morgues. We are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week, we are talking about death and pets in times of war. Please be advised that this episode contains mention of animal euthanasia, war, and of course, death. Now let's get on with the show. For those who are unaware, this is sort of a part two to an episode that I hosted way back in season one, titled Death and Pets, Pet Cemeteries. Fun fact, that's actually one of our least popular episodes. And I wanted to return to this topic of death and pets, though primarily because I feel like it's really interesting. And we all have pets. All three of us have cats. Uh, And Janine, you also have Dear Mr. Frodo. Well, the since bunny. the last time we talked pets, I got a cat, so. You sure did, yeah. Yeah, this is this is a cat person podcast, apparently. <laughs> Mr. Frodo is still kicking it at 11 years old. He turned 11 just this month, so. Oh my goodness. Happy birthday, Frodo. <laughs> On the topic of pets that have passed, um, there was an account that started following our Instagram, which you should also go and follow, Mortals Podcast on Instagram, uh, is an account called the Dead Pet Girls. And it's really interesting if you are also interested in the side of like death culture and how it pertains to human mourning and our beloved pets. Um, I highly recommend that you check them out. They've got some pretty cool content on there. But the second reason that I am coming back around to this topic is because my brain recently has been chock full of research for a new exhibit at work that should hopefully be opening later this year, and it is all about animals, as my dear co-worker Janine knows. Uh, So I have a brain full of 19th century animal facts. I learned a lot about animal welfare and its development, and that's just where my headspace is at. So here we are again. But as I was doing this research, I learned about an event that occurred in 1939, just after the outset of the Second World War that I had never heard of. Janine and Mariah, do you have any idea what I'm talking about? A large death and pet related event that occurred in 1939? Have you ever heard of anything like that? In my brain, I have this memory of being in history class in high school. And there being something about cats and catapults, but I'm pretty sure my prof oh. <laughs> was pulling my leg. Like, oh, sorry, the teacher wasn't a prof. I was in high school. Like, I think he was pulling our legs. Other than that, I can hazard a guess maybe something to do with people retreating from the front lines of war and having to slaughter or kill their animals um, so that they don't fall into combatant hands. As a resource, that's that's all I can think of. Oh. Um, no, not quite. It's I'm imagining then that it's some sort of uh, like early chemical warfare going on, 
uh, of some sort. But again, I'm I'm no real history buff. My historical knowledge is very specific and scattered. <laughs> I thought, you know, I was like, this is going to be a pretty dark episode. And then you guys were just like, chemical war- warfare, <laughs> cat catapults. And I'm like, oh my god, okay. Well, I'm not talking about the- either of those things. So, <laughs> well, um, that's good, I guess. I don't even. I wasn't even expecting those sorts of answers. So I'm a little bit dumbfounded. Um, so neither of you have heard of this event that occurred in 1939, and dear listeners, I'd be surprised if many of you have heard of it either. And um, if you do know what I'm talking about, well, welcome to the unfortunate club. Until you <laughs> listen to the rest of this episode, in which case we're all part of the club. So, folks. We are going to be talking about this event, but first I just want to talk a little bit broadly about animals and war and how those two things so often interconnect and overlap through history. In the 21st century, I think we see the least amount of involvement of animals than ever before in the history of humankind and war, with the motorization of the world and in the last few decades, the need for even less soldiers on the ground. We are seeing less animals used for labor on the war front. But like I said before, I think animals and the war of people are intrinsically linked. Prior to the invention of the automobile, and even in the vehicle's early development, we had horses, oxen, camels, and elephants that were used to haul medical equipment, artillery, food, and the soldiers themselves to theaters of war. Not to mention other animals like dogs were used to scout or sniff out bombs or were simply used to guard soldiers while they slept. In the 19th century, we see the rise of pet keeping as we kind of know it today, and animals kind of took on a new role in war. When people have to evacuate or leave their homes, they aren't just bringing things with them. But many, many people make every effort possible to bring their pets with them in times of crisis. As would I, yeah. Pets today are now seen in areas of conflict as they are seen in the arms of their owners or they are wandering aimlessly due to separation or being orphaned. In the World Wars, we also begin to see regiments of soldiers take on animals as mascots or individual companions to provide a brief light in the darkness of war. We see puppies, dogs, kittens, and cats that serve no use in times of war, really, begin to appear in the historical record. We have many photographs of people posing with their companions or with their regiment's mascots. And while, sure, they don't really have a military use, A kitten, as far as I know, does not have much military use, but I am sure that soldiers who look after the kittens and the puppies and the dashhounds and cats would disagree and probably tell us that they serve an important purpose to help comfort soldiers and keep up their morale uh, while on the battlefield. I was going to say very much a morale booster, also a caretaking yes thing like having that caretaking instinct can just make you feel a little bit more human absolutely yeah 
kind of rising in tandem with the practice of pet keeping in the 19th century, we also begin to see the roots of the animal welfare movement. Uh, this kind of began with the foundation of Martin's Act in England in 1822, which sought oh. to prevent the unnecessary cruelty to cattle and other animals. And many other countries followed suit with animal welfare laws, including parts of what would eventually become Canada. And in the 19th century, we start to see organizations like the Blue Cross and these like various societies for the prevention of cruelty to animals pop up in the United Kingdom and in North America with the intent to bring animal welfare into the ideology of the general public. Unfortunately, though, many people and many animals do not outlive times of war. People have fallen with their pets in their arms. Farm animals are slaughtered in what you guys refer to as the raised earth kind of idea so that they can't be used as food for encroaching soldiers. And horses and oxen are shot out from under supply wagons and soldiers. And it is impossible to know an exact number, but you guys were both kind of alluding to it earlier uh, a couple minutes ago. But several million horses and mules died in the First and Second World Wars. I have a, a thought to add there. And I don't remember where I saw this, but in my World War I knowledge accumulation through the years, one of the theories actually about the Spanish flu post-World War I hmm. was that, that it was mutated and passed to humans by the vast numbers of war horses. Interesting. Huh. Spending so much time in poor conditions with horses uh, is one of the theories of how the Spanish flu got started. And the only reason it's called the Spanish flu is because Spain was reporting a lot of the cases first. I mean, that makes sense too, because just because we draw kind of an artificial line between humans and non-human animals doesn't mean that uh, viruses and bacteria do. Uh, as evidenced by the fact that early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, there were reports of cats and dogs coming down with it. You know, the bubonic plague was spread heavily by rats. There's a, there's a possibility that our continued use of, you know, quote-unquote war animals uh, while destroying each other in nation-to-nation -nation combat would contribute to... Uh, an internal battle, immune system versus virus, rather than I don't know, biking to war. I do feel like there was a, <laughs> I feel like there was a there was a step that was missed in the uh, automation of of transport between horse to car is that there was bikes, but nobody's like, hold on, let me get all of my gear and I'm gonna bicycle to war. <laughs> all of this to say, essentially, that you know, throughout history, humans haven't really like you can have war without animals but throughout history it's very rare you know we have entire contingents of armies dedicated to riding on horseback we rely so heavily on other creatures to kind of get a leg up on other human factions that we are fighting against for land or resources or money or power or what have you. So I think that, you know, these two 
animals and war are very historically, intrinsically linked. But we come now to talk about the event that I have been alluding to. At the outset of the Second World War, so in 1939, there was an event that occurred that I had never heard of before until I started doing research for this upcoming exhibit and I kind of stumbled across it. It is a sort of forgotten event, however, more has come out about it over the last couple decades, and there are historians that are now specializing in the circumstances surrounding what happened. And it all started with a pamphlet. An organization called the National Air Raid Precautions Animal Committee, known from now on as NARPAC, was formed in England, and they released a pamphlet offering advice for pets in times of war. With war declared on September 3rd, 1939, many people were making plans and they were wondering what to do with their pets, especially as there were rumors of an incoming food shortage in England. No! If, if they have to eat their pets, I'm going to cry. It's not going to go where you think it's going to go. Honestly, <laughs> it's somehow worse. The advice in the aforementioned pamphlet was echoed in newspapers and on the BBC radio shows. The advice from the pamphlet read, If at all possible, send or take your household animals into the country in advance of an emergency. It concluded, If you cannot place them in the care of your neighbors, it really is kindest to have them destroyed. Many people, upon hearing of impending food shortages and the general panic, that we unfortunately now have become familiar with in the recent months, but this general panic that a looming war can cause, many people acted on this advice. No! The pamphlet also conveniently had an advertisement for a captive bolt pistol, which was believed to be a humane way of putting down animals in those days. But many pet owners took their furry and feathered friends on one-way trips to vet hospitals. I imagine that these decisions were made as many people who were living during this time. They remember what it was like during the First World War. They remembered the starving cats and dogs wandering the streets, having either been abandoned or orphaned due to the circumstances of war. And they did not want to see that happen either again or the first time, to their own beloved animals. With that being said, there were certainly a large percentage who saw their pet as a luxury, and it was one that they could no longer afford. Another mouth to feed during wartime could have a heavy price. On some level, I get it. Like, as a person with a human heart, who currently is not living in do-or-die times, I cannot fathom that being a preemptive measure. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if if you're in a do-or-die time and essentially the government or an authority that you trust ha or at least have faith in is telling like the you... fucking BBC! Yeah, is telling <sighs> you, go put down Fluffy, it's for your own good, you know... Regardless of their reasons, 
people took the advice that was spread by NARPAC. And the week after this pamphlet was released and the radio and newspapers echoed its words, there were massive lineups at the numerous vets and animal hospitals across England. That's brutal. In the first four days, 400,000 cats and dogs were put down. In just the UK? This is just England. This is just just England. England. This isn't even the whole UK. Wow. Crematoriums were suddenly overwhelmed, and due to the blackout measures that were now being implemented at night so that Germans wouldn't drop bombs on places, uh, so they required all sources of light to be cut or heavy curtains or, you know, you couldn't have a crematorium going all night. So as a result, the crematoriums could only run during the day and with hundreds of thousands of people putting down their pets, there was a massive backlog. It is estimated that by the end of the first week, after war was declared in 1939, 750,000 pets were euthanized. The first bomb did not fall on London until 1940. And after that first week, there was a bit of a lull. There was a little bit of a dip and, you know, euthanizations slowed down. But after the first bombings of London in 1940, there was another rush to euthanize pets as panic swelled once again. The war was, you know, officially on people's doorsteps in London. Even the animals of the London Zoo were not exempt from this mass euthanization. Every animal from the insects to the lion cubs and the bears were put to death. And I'm like, how do you... How do you euthanize a bug? Do you just... Are you like, hello, precious specimen I've spent so long maintaining. Do you just squish it? I was honestly wondering about that when I was reading about it. (laughs) Because there was a mention specifically of Black Widows. Um, There is a book about... um, I believe it's called... The Dog and Cat Massacre. It's by a historian named Hilda Keen, and she goes like super into detail about this whole event. I hate I hate to play the devil's advocate here. And like if I were in the situation, I can't say what I'd do. I feel like I would not follow that advice, but who's to say? But we have the benefit of hindsight knowing that the bombs didn't start falling until nineteen forty. Mm-hmm. They didn't know that. They had a government agency, was it? It was like an animal welfare. It was an air raid committee specifically dedicated to uh, discussing what do you do with your animals? Telling them this is the right thing to do. I imagine there came with that a lot of social pressure. Yeah. And also, I'm trying to get into the, the heads of the people who recommended this. Mm-hmm. As, a, as a proper course of action to take. And I'm imagining, you know, London gets bombed and a bunch of people die. And now there's animals either that are also dead or that are without their owners running about in the streets. And I don't know if there would have been a more robust or as robust campaign to have your pets fixed at the time. That might have resulted in a lot of more street animals and that kind of thing. 
Um, So I think maybe that's another aspect that they were thinking about. I, like Mm -hmm. I said, I don't know for sure, but I can imagine animals do, including humans, we're animals, they do spread disease, which can make things worse. And if there's a street population of cats or dogs or whatever, that can exacerbate a problem. Also, another thing that's going through my head is how much dogs hate loud noises. Yes. Is the dog going to be traumatized? Even if it survives this bombing, is it going to be traumatized at the end of it? And like, I'm not saying the right thing to do is to preemptively euthanize it, but I can see why Mm -hmm. that's a thing. (laughs) Like I said, I don't know if I would do that. I don't know if I would follow the advice. I can't say I'm not living in that particular social circumstance, but it's a heavy, war is a heavy situation to deal with. And that's a heavy uh, recommendation to make and take. Just on that thought of like, like what do you do in, circumstances where there is no right answer because there is nothing uh, morally defense morally defensible about being blitzkrieged <laughs> or you know dealing with food shortages and uh, like how do you feed your cat over your neighbor and I, th- I feel like there's an element too of there being uh, like a national assembly or a national air raid control situation that's dedicated to pets going, this is the right thing to do, and going, I don't know what to do, but somebody else has told me there is a right thing to do. Mm-hmm. That there is some, quote-unquote, moral action that I can take that is better than the absolute chaos and unknown of what is coming. Not that it makes it any easier, right? It's one thing for me to sit here and say, I would rather my cat eat my corpse. Assuming that when it came down to it, I would feed my cat over myself. Mm-hmm. Which it's, I'm not sure that I could do, just as an animal that has the drive to survive the same way that my cat does. My cat may be eating me before I die, right? But there's <laughs> there, there's that nitty gritty day to day. What do I do? Somebody is giving me directions. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I think one of the examples that Hilda Keen talks about is how some people were keeping poison during World War I so that they could allegedly poison their children before they fell into the hands of Germans. Now, she makes the comparison. She says, well, there were no mass poisonings of children, um, even in occupied territories or anything like that. So it's... It just... It was an interesting... It was an interesting thing that was pointed out, and I'm not really sure what to do with that in my brain. But there are some, like, as far as playing devil's advocate, when it comes to the London Zoo, my first thought was that kind of makes sense, because what if, you know, a bomb falls and the grizzly bear exhibit opens and yeah. nobody's been feeding the grizzly bear, and you've got you've got bombs falling, and there's bear also the a bear yeah. or a starving lion or something on the loose. So I, I like that kind of made like as yeah. close to logical sense as I think this could come to. Also, I'm thinking about the fact that that when you're talking about there being you know three quarter of a million animals euthanized. That's Mm -hmm. animals that are euthanized in a place where it's recorded. That's not including the people 
who are like, oh, here's a convenient gun ad. Yes. And who were potentially using rat poison on their own pets. Yes. Definitely something to consider when taking that number into account. And that's also only like the first week. Which is so like who's counting after the bombs start falling, right? Like people have, have bigger things to deal with. Yeah, and it's like, how would you even count? What sort of registry was there? Like, was there any sort of public registry of any kind about who had what pets and what numbers? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I can go to a vet and be like, here's my cat Thor. There's no proof that he's my cat other than I have come in and said, here's my cat. Yeah. I mean, I have beans chipped now, so. True. Uh, fun, fun fact about when we got beans... Um, because he has a chip, when we were checking out at, um, the pet store, like, cause we still had to pay his adoption fee or whatever, yeah. the lady grabbed him by the stomach and literally scanned him like he was a can of tomatoes across the thing. <laughs> like a library incredible. book where you just put it in the <laughs> slot and it's like, boop, boop, and then you take home. It incredible. fucking beeped. It was one of the funniest things I think I've ever seen in my life. I was like, oh, uh, what does he would... come up as? <laughs> so That's some funny. incredible levity for a heavy episode. <laughs> yes. All of that brevity aside, going back to the Pet Massacre of 1939, um, after the initial panic of those first few weeks had abated, many people realized that they had made a mistake. And it is also kind of noted, I couldn't really tell for sure, but I guess the pamphlet didn't actually tell people to kill their cats and dogs. It was more of a raised earth policy was what they were trying to say. But the way that it was worded and everything and just the way that like, I don't know if there was like, cause it was a committee. So I don't know if it was like two heads that weren't talking to each other, but I read you the quote. It sounds like go put spot down. Regardless, many people realized that they had made a mistake, and the food shortages were not as imminent as the rumors had suggested, and Lundy bombed, as I mentioned, for about a year after the 1939 pet massacre. To be the and, owner of one of those pets, and yeah. having had put them down either euthanized or by some homegrown method, and then a year goes by where you're like, what did I do? I was actually talking to my partner earlier about this, and he brought up something really interesting. He said, like, he also talked about the, he also mentioned, you know, the whole idea of dogs that um, panicking during the Blitzkrieg, you know, it's like fireworks. But, you know, it's a literal dog's worst nightmare. (laughs) Like, not only are the loud noises and scary but they are also suggestive of large falling objects but he also mentioned you know to have a pet with you through those bombings was probably a lot more helpful and you know was overall more of a net positive than you know to maybe eat a little better some days because people were still like not everybody in london killed their pets the pets of people who refused to act on this advice from the NARPAC pamphlet, for the most part, you know, 
not everybody survived the war, obviously. And yeah. so bombs fell on buildings, and so some pets did die in the bombings. But, you know, for the most part, the pets who were not euthanized survived the war. And I imagine that those animals who were not euthanized a massive comfort to people in bomb shelters during the Blitz. It's like maximum mom friend overdrive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? When it's instead of being like, oh, I'm scared and I need comfort, being like, no. No, no, no. Someone else needs help. So I'm going to override any fear that I have to be of service to them. So I think... My cat from... is scared, and so I am going to be brave. Yeah, like, it, it may seem silly, but I feel like that would be a real thing, especially when everything is so bad. Well, you're, you're mentioning the, the need to take care to make yourself feel better, feel like you're the, the mom friend or whatever <laughs> in times of war. But you're also seeing that, we mentioned this earlier, with, like, soldiers like on the front lines mm, taking care yeah. of something. They're, in, they're right in the thick of it, right? come across a kitten, I can imagine battalions go crazy. They go nuts. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. Look at this little cat. Look at this dog. Let us <laughs> take care of it, right? So it's like a measure of control and comfort that you can provide for something, even if you yourself don't feel that, but it kind of helps you feel it regardless. Yeah. And there's an yeah. aspect too because humans are social animals that and care is a very fundamental part of being com- part of a community and community is what makes humans safe because of our social nature so i think that there's an aspect of there is something or someone that i can care for which makes you feel more connected to your community which makes you feel more connected to other people and therefore more likely to survive right there's a there's a spark of hope in taking care of others so just to kind of speak to that, there was opposition to this pet call by several veterinary organizations, and the RSPCA, or the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, was also against this call. There were numerous shelters that took in dogs and cats and other animals during the war, uh, notably the Battersea Dogs and Cats Home managed to feed and care for 145,000 dogs during this time. But unfortunately, the panic had set in and the pet owners that we have talked about had already acted. Once these pets were unfortunately euthanized, once they were taken to the vet hospitals to end their life on this mortal coil, uh, they were either cremated or they were buried as the crematoriums were overwhelmed. So uh, they were buried in the small grounds held by these vet practices, but those were also very quickly also at capacity. Once it was becoming clear that there was no more room to bury the pets of London, one sanatorium whose name I could not find, uh, but they offered an attached meadow where it is believed that half a million pets euthanized during this time are buried. There are even more that are buried elsewhere, uh, specifically unmarked at the Ilford Animal Cemetery that also contains the remains of animal war heroes, like Simon, a cat who served on the HMS Amethyst, or 
Uh, Mary Exeter, who was a carrier pigeon who delivered important information safely to its intended receiver during World War II. And Rip, the first search and rescue dog who worked in the service of England. All of them were buried at Ilford. However, these named animals have proper headstones and usually have a little blurb about who and what species they were. But it's believed that there is a ton of unmarked buried animals here from this massive pet cull. There was also, I feel like uh, I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but there was, I suppose, also a lot of in memoriam, uh, like obituaries that ended up in the newspaper talking about pets that were put down and the owners, you know, expressing grief and regret over having to make the decision to put down their animals. Memorials for animals are actually not as uncommon as I first thought when I started researching this topic. Um, there's the, uh, there's the National War Dog Cemetery in Guam that honors the dogs who fell in the service of the United States Marine Corps during the second bottle of Guam in 1944. There is also a very touching memorial in London's Hyde Park to honor the service of animals in war. And there are two heavily burdened bronze mules going up the stairs to the monument, as well as a bronze horse and a bronze dog. Uh, There are three inscriptions, but I'd like to read just two of them to you guys. The first one is, I believe, the largest, and it reads, This monument is dedicated to all the animals that served and died alongside British and Allied forces in wars and campaigns throughout time. There is a second inscription that is much smaller and simply reads, They had no choice. I think that the one thing that I want people to take away from this episode of Mortals is that if you have a pet, and if you live in an area of conflict, or if you live in an area prone to earthquakes, or hurricanes, or floods, and if you are able to, and if you have a go bag or an emergency kit, please make sure that you also have a plan for your pets. A little baggie of treats, a few cans or containers of food, an extra bottle of water, and a carrier if you have the space. Maybe like their favorite or like a backup favorite blanket or toy or something. When we adopt a pet, we are taking on the responsibility of another living creature's well-being. And I think that it is important that we are prepared to care for them too in times of crisis. Obviously, crises are unpredictable and, well, crises, so we can only do what we can in the moment, but it really doesn't hurt to prepare and to try and help out our little companions get out with us. It's kind of the worst case scenario, a lot of this. We don't want to have to think about worst case scenarios. I don't know... If we would do anything different today in the 21st century, if that type of order or that type of advice was offered, but someone somewhere right now is living through war and 
doing everything they can to keep themselves and their loved ones and their pets safe. Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast, and on our website, mortalspodcast.com. Show your support, access bonus content, and help us keep ads out of your ears by joining our community at patreon.com slash mortals podcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there. <laughs>